gospel of Mark. We've been in for several weeks, continues today. And I just got a, a question for you. How many of you have a traditions in your family that you have kept maybe for, for generations that have been very important for your family? Anybody have some traditions? Maybe it's around holidays or special days. Nobody has t- two of you. Okay. The rest of us are just lame, right? Uh, Family traditions are, um, can help celebrate your family history, your heritage. They can give you a sense of identity and belonging because you're remembering some important things about your family. And uh, everybody enjoys those traditions. And I think there's something similar even to religious tradition because many of you, if you agree with this or not or believe it or not, many of us have religious traditions that we hold on to. And those religious traditions can be good because they can help you to to honor and celebrate your faith and the God behind that faith. It can give you a sense of structure and meaning, and many of you have cherished some of your religious traditions. But how many know that also religious tradition has the danger of actually becoming more important than the God that you even worship through that tradition? And that's what Jesus confronts today in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. He is confronting religious leaders who have elevated tradition even above keeping the true commands of God. And through it, Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter, the heart of the matter. Let's go to Luke chapter 7, sorry, Mark chapter 7. If you don't have your Bibles today, um, that's okay. We've got Bibles available by the doors when you come in, or many of you have a smart device, a tablet, smartphone, and you can download the Bible app. It's one of the most downloaded apps in your app store. And that Bible app has embedded in there the notes as well of today's message. If you follow us on Facebook or Instagram, there's also links to that Bible app directly on there. So look us up on social media. You can find the link directly to those Bible resources as well. But in Mark 7 verse 1, we see that that the Pharisees had come. And in fact, it says that the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. You see, what we've seen happen now a couple of times in Mark is that Jerusalem, which is kind of the capital hub of the religious faith of Israel, Jerusalem had dispatched leaders from their cluster of leadership to go investigate Jesus. And the reason they would do this is often rabbis or teachers would come up and they wanted to make sure that these rabbis or teachers were teaching truth. So they would send out these delegates who would go and listen. This has happened now twice to Jesus. And this delegation comes and confronts Jesus. And the whole reason behind it is because his ministry is gaining popularity. His teaching is becoming very popular among the Jewish people. And that threatens kind of the tradition of these Jewish leaders. And so they confront Jesus. And we see it happen right here. And their confrontation today happens to be around a tradition of the elders. Let's look at it. It says in verse 2, and some of his disciples, that would be Jesus' disciples, they saw them eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So as the leaders come, they're always looking for something wrong to criticize Jesus or to shut down his ministry. And so he this time singles out the disciples and had been observing the fact that before they began to eat, they did not ceremonially wash their hands. Now, according to what the Jewish people believed, if you did not ceremonially wash your hands before you ate, then any defilement you had on your hands 
from coming into contact with unclean things or unclean people. If you ate with those defiled hands, that defilement would come inside of you as well, and you would become defiled. And in the law, if you were defiled, you couldn't worship God at the temple, you couldn't offer certain things at synagogue, you had to excuse yourself from ministry because you were defiled until you went through a purification process. And so that's what they were accusing. Now, moms, unless you make a case here out of biblical purposes of hand washing, that wasn't necessarily the point. Now, I believe in hand washing. I believe there's some great hygiene reasons why we should. But the Pharisees weren't concerned about the hygiene of the disciples, but rather they were concerned because they were violating a tradition of the elders, the traditional hand washing. And now what, what Mark does is you'll notice the next part of Mark's account here is in parentheses. And the reason it's in parentheses is because Mark is giving kind of an author's note to his audience. Remember, Mark was writing to non-Jewish people. His audience was more than likely people who lived in and around Rome who were Gentiles. They were not Jewish people for many of them. And so he was giving some descriptions behind the culture and tradition of the Jews. And so he says in verse 3 that the Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. So where does this hand washing come from? In the book of Exodus, we see God give commands to the priests. Now, the priests were the tribe of Levi, and the priests were the ones who would serve in the temple. They would serve before God in various roles. Before they could come in and do their sacred job, they had to stop at the wash station. It was called the lavar, or whatever you want to call it, and they would wash. And they would ceremonially wash their hands and their feet. And it was simply a symbolic act of separating themselves from any defilement they may have ran into out in where they lived. So they'd come in, they would ceremonially wash their hands and their feet, then they would go and serve. And so what we see here is something that was applied specifically to the priests. Nowhere else had there been a demand in the law about hand washing for all Jewish people. This was a command they had taken from Exodus chapter 30. So this was not a violation of Scripture when the disciples ate without washing their hands. This was a violation of tradition, because it goes on to say, holding to the tradition of the elders. Well, what is the tradition of the elders? For those of us who have no Jewish background, I'll give us the quick short tour, all right? So we know that in the Old Testament books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these are the books of Moses, right? We know that Moses, specifically in Exodus, receives the Ten Commandments from God. We can see that in Exodus 20, where we see the commands given. And then in Exodus and Leviticus in particular, uh, we also see further kind of uh, commands around how to live before a holy God and things they were to do concerning offerings and sacrifices and certain living environments and social interactions. And all of this was because Israel was God's chosen set-apart people. These commands were not for everybody. They were for God's chosen people to live in covenant community with God. This is how we're going to do it. And for an unholy people to live in the presence of a holy God because his presence dwelt in the temple, in order for that to continue, they had to follow these rituals and rules that were spelled out in the Old Testament. 
But what had happened is, fast forward in history to the collapse of Israel when they had disobeyed God, when they violated all these commands that God had given, and they were kicked out of their land of promise and were taken off to Babylon. While they were away from the temple, because the temple had been destroyed, they could no longer worship at the temple, and so their focus moved from the sacrificial system to keeping the law. And in order to properly keep the law, they began to give application laws around all the laws. So, for example, they would take commandment number one, and then they would write all manner of how to make sure they were keeping that command. They would take other commands and give these application laws. And over time, these oral traditions or these elders who would teach these ways of keeping the law were collected and written into a book called the Mishnah, which was actually the Jewish book of rules. It was how you would live. And so this tradition of the elders was not scripture. It was application for how to do the commands. But over time, here's what happened. As these rabbis would teach, and as they would teach, and as they would add these commands and then reinforce these commands, these commands began to take equal place to God's word. To the point where a rabbi would say, if you violate these commands, you would be excommunicated from community because you're violating God's word. Now, here's the trouble with that. If we ever elevate our interpretation of the, of the word of God to the level of the word of God, that's idolatry, and we're in trouble. This happens all the time, even still today, friends, where people take uh, principles of God's word and make them equal to God's word. That's what was happening. So that's the tradition of the elders. And so Jesus, by the way, never violated the Ten Commandments. Where Jesus got in trouble with the religious leaders was about the tradition of the elders. So sometimes it would look like Jesus was a lawbreaker because they would be confronting him on stuff that he or his disciples were doing that seemed contrary to their law. But what it was in contrast to was the tradition of the elders. In fact, the way that Jesus discerned the difference, when he was referring to the law of Moses, Jesus would say, it is written. And he would quote from the law or the prophets. There were times when Jesus would teach and he would say things like this. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. What he's confronting is tradition. And so Jesus never violated God's command because he is God. How could he violate his own sense of integrity, right? But he did violate and confront the traditions that these religious leaders had elevated to the status and beyond of Scripture. So it goes on uh, concerning hand washing. What would basically be the case is when uh, the laws were written, I'm sorry, the, when the traditions were written down, part of that tradition was that ceremonial hand washing of the priests was now applicable to all Jewish people. And so before you prayed or before you ate, you had to ceremonially wash your hand. And they even broke it down what it would look like, the amount of water you would use. You had to use what was the equivalent of two half eggshells of water. And you would take that first eggshell of water and you would pour it 
onto your hands, fingertips downward, your hands got wet, and then you would wash using your fist to wash the palms of the other hands, and then you would take the other water and rinse your hands downward so the water would run off your fingertips, thus all the defilement would come off of your hands. And while you did that, you prayed, Blessed be thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who sanctified us by the laws and commanded us to wash the hands. That was their prayer, and they would do that. Disciples didn't do that before they ate bread. And they may have never done that. Because to keep up with all of the Mishnah laws was almost an impossible task for the Jewish people. So the Pharisees saw that and thought certainly a rabbi would never allow his disciples to eat with defiled hands. He certainly cannot be a rabbi. Well, it moves on, verse 4. As Mark continues to describe the, the Mishnah or the rules of the elders, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. What's happening here is that when a Jew, uh, especially Pharisees, were out in public, they would go to the market to buy whatever, then they would think that they could accidentally or unintentionally come in contact with something unclean. Heaven forbid that be a Samaritan or a Gentile, because if they came into contact with sinners, they became unclean. So for them, it was this whole point of never mingling with the sinners and never allowing that stuff to get on them, all right? Otherwise, they would have to wash, and just in case they happened to bump into somebody sinful, they would wash, and they would not become defiled. And they would also do that with containers, with jars, and, and so forth. And they made these commands equal, and this is the important part, equal to and superseding the laws of God. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, see, now what's he quoting from? The law. He's quoting from the Bible. This is a prophet, actually. These people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. So what Jesus basically confronts is that tradition. And so he goes to what should be the authority over these Pharisees, a prophet, they are all about the law and the prophets. And so they quote Isaiah. And they're actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And he says that Isaiah was right when he spoke about you. Now, Isaiah's original prophecy was about the nation of Israel, who had made their worship just all about external structure, but their hearts were corrupt. He applies that to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they knew this prophecy. But interestingly enough, they never applied it to themselves. Isn't there a danger of knowing Scripture but never applying it to yourself? We as Christians continue to wrestle with this. They never, thought it, they never saw that it would apply to them because they were so righteous, they were so religious, they were so pious, they were so clean. Certainly, they couldn't be the ones who were the hypocrites, but Jesus calls them a hypocrite by quoting Isaiah. And a hypocrite basically is a pretender. It's a play actor. In the time in which Jesus would, would be teaching, 
Hypocrites were the terms used for the actors who would take the stage and they would usually have some kind of mask they would wear. And that mask would project an image of the character they were trying to be. He's saying, basically, you are projecting an image that is not true of who you are on the inside. Boy, isn't that something that many of us have wrestled with as well, including myself. Projecting an image that isn't true of us on the inside. So he confronts them. And he says, you're hypocrites. Pretty tough stuff. And then he says basically this, that they had lip worship, but they lacked in heart worship. So he talks about how they would honor God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Thanks to my wife, I have a big set of lips here today. Don't get worried. This could be kind of weird to have lips, but uh, let me explain. Jesus was touching on something when he did this. He said, you... You honor God with your lips. But the motivation behind the lips, your heart, is far from God. Now, isn't it interesting that even we as Christians today can wrestle with this, where we come to church and and we use our lips to give nice Christian greetings and God bless you, brother, and God bless you, sister, and oh, God is good, and, and we would sing songs about the goodness of God, and, and, and we, would, we would raise our hands and worship, but a lot of times, isn't it true that our hearts could actually be elsewhere? Our lips might be here, but our affections are elsewhere. And this is what Jesus confronted the elders with, and the traditional uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they said, you come to God and, and you honor him through your, through your appearance of, of being so righteous and holy, but in reality, your hearts are far from God. And friends, boy, how this is a danger for us, how we can make Christianity nothing more than coming and giving God lip service, but yet our affections are set on something else and our hearts are far from God. Maybe for us, that affection might be set on a person or an idolatrous thing, something that we value higher than God, and yet we're, we're fine giving lip service, but our hearts. And what, you know what Jesus calls this? He calls it vain worship. You worship me in vain because your heart is not in it. You ever found yourself just kind of singing along with a song and recognized that all you were doing was just singing along with a song? It was never your heart. I think what the Lord would desire from us instead would be something more like this, where our lips are closely attached to our heart. Because the Bible says very clearly that the overflow of the, what? Heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, there should be a stronger connection that the good person brings the good that is stored within them, but the evil person brings the evil that is stored within them. And what God wants among all of his people, especially those who should be the teachers of the law, the ones, by the way, who should have recognized Jesus for who he was, they couldn't see it. And he confronted them on their vain worship. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Friends, here's the truth. God is always more concerned about the condition of your heart than the content of your lips. He's always more concerned about the condition of this than what comes off of these. Now, we should guard what comes off of these. But in reality, this is the goal 
It's got to start here. And that's what Jesus was dealing with because for the religious leaders, they had begun to create a shell about them that looked righteous, including the ceremonies of hand washing. Oh, look at how holy we are. And all of their religion was external. But that is not what Jesus is concerned about. He is always concerned about the origin, which is the heart. In fact, when God gave the commands to Moses, the issue wasn't, here's a bunch of rules to weigh you down. The issue was you should love God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And because of that, these will be the outflow of who you are. Instead, they became so focused on tradition and rules that they actually did not even have a heart after God. And friends, the danger for us is that we can also become hypocrites. How do we do that? When we pay more attention to our appearances or reputation than to our character. And this is so dangerous because character matters to God. We can also become hypocrites when we carefully follow certain religious practices while allowing our heart to remain far from God. And again, that's a danger all of us face. Even as you're reading devotions in the morning, isn't it so easy for your mind to wander elsewhere and you really not to take in the word of God? We can also become hypocrites when we emphasize goodness and others' sins. So Jesus confronts them in verse 8. He says, you have let go of the commands of God and you're holding on to human traditions. In other words, the religious leaders were guilty of doing the very thing they were trying to avoid. Remember, initially, the the additional traditions were given to protect the law, to make sure it was honored. But what had happened over years is their traditions became so important that they lost sight of the original purpose of the law of God, which was what? To bring God's kingdom near, that his presence and his peace might be with us. And instead, they've made everything about rules, Laws and regulations. In fact, now, because of all these laws and rules of the tradition of the elders, it has pushed the kingdom of God away from people and has removed the peace of God from their hearts. And now they're burdened with all these laws. Look at how Jesus confronts the Pharisees elsewhere in Matthew chapter 23. Verse 1, he says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they have a place of authority. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and and put them on other people's shoulders. He's talking about that tradition of the elders, all those rules, regulations. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done. For people to see. He goes on in verse 13 of Matthew 23. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let anyone or those enter who are trying to. In other words, because of their laws and and their hypocrisy, they are shutting the door of God's kingdom, which means the reason the laws came was to move God near. And now because of their tradition and laws, they were closing the kingdom of God from people. You know, it's dangerous, friends, for us because this still happens through our hypocrisy. We are still guilty of closing the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And usually it happens through our judgmental uh, 
statements that we make. Yeah, I agree there's a moral that God has given us that we should honor. But when we sit behind our social media and take shots at people about things and sound angry and sound judgmental and are so terrible, who wants that? Right? Jesus came because God so loved the world. That's why he came. He came to be an extension of truth, yes, but in a grace-filled way. The Pharisees were never about grace. In fact, they should have known better. In the Old Testament, God continued to say, isn't obedience better than sacrifice? That, that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God was always about trying to connect relationally to his people. But the religious watchguards were always trying to make it hard to get to. Friends, we have to be careful that we're never letting our tradition keep people away from God. And it's so easy to do. It's so easy. In fact, let me tell you how it, how it plays out. I invited a person that I knew in community to, to come to church. I said, hey, you know, I passed. They didn't know I pastored. Uh, they said, I, I pastor at a church here in town. And uh, it's called Neighborhood Church. And I would welcome you to come. You know what their response was? Well, I don't have any church clothes. And I was like, well, neither do I. <laughs> I don't have a certain section of my closet called, these are church clothes. But isn't it funny that somehow they thought they couldn't come to church because they didn't have church clothes? You know, I looked at Kohl's. There's no section called, this is where church clothes are. There isn't. But what's happened? Let me tell you what happened. And I know I'm stepping on toes with this. Here's what happened. We have established tradition that says, unless you dress a certain way, you're not welcome into the house of God. Where did that origin come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It came from good intentions. It came from saying we, we should dress our best for God because he deserves that kind of worship and authority. And so what was meant to be a good intention, and by the way, when the tradition started, they had good intention to safeguard law. But pretty soon what happened is those traditions became authoritative even over the law. The same thing has happened throughout the church for centuries. Isn't it true? We've elevated tradition. And because of that, it's kept people at arm's length. And we tell people, well, you can't act like that and go to church. And so we begin to create behaviors before they even believe and belong. So we say, well, if you're going to come to church, you've got to stop doing this and this and this. And I'm saying, knock it off. If people who are broken, who don't behave like Christians, want to come and see what God is all about, let them in no matter how they are dressed, no matter how they smell, because they need to come to a place of encountering the love of God and never allow our traditions to keep them away. So that's what Jesus continued to confront, was just how that tradition had continued to push God away. And he says in verse 9 of Mark 7, and he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, and now he's quoting the big guns of the Jewish people. I mean, this is Moses, all right? And this is the commandment of God. Honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, now what's he, what's he talking about now? Tradition. So Moses said, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother, 
Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. What's Jesus talking about? What is this korban? Isn't that like a university up the road from here? Um, well, yes, it is a university up the road from here. Um, but here's what he's talking about. He is addressing a tradition of the elders. Let me explain. So we all know the commandment. I think it's number five, honor your father and your mother, right? We, we've heard that. In fact, how many of you have been guilty of using that against your kids, right? I mean, I've been guilty of doing that. All right. So we understand the nature of the law. God wanted the people of Israel to honor their parents. But this was not just a command for children that we use when they're under 12, okay? Or maybe more specifically, under 18. So we end up saying, you know, things like honor your parents. The Bible says that. But it's not just a kid thing. In the nation of Israel, honoring your parents was, yes, obedience and respect as a child, but it was also care and concern as they aged. And so in the culture of Israel, if you did not care for your family, it was like a sin. You were disrespecting and dishonoring your parents. So Jesus uses a command, honor your parents. And then he goes to this tradition of the elders. You know what the tradition was? The tradition went like this. They understood the law, honoring parents, but they created a loophole. And aren't attorneys good at doing that? I mean, that's kind of what teachers of the law and religious leaders were like. They were like religious attorneys. They were finding a loophole. Here was the loophole. Let's say I have money. If I say I dedicate all of my money to God, then that money cannot be used for anybody else. So they would say, this is korban. It's devoted to God. Now, here's the deal. They didn't have to give it to God. They didn't even have to take it to the temple. It was just committed to God. Truth was, that person who committed that money to God could still use that money for his own purpose because he wasn't giving it to somebody else. He was using it for his own. He could still provide for his needs. He could still do the things that God would expect them to do with their money. But what he couldn't do is let his parents have that money. So it was a loophole. So what he's basically saying is, you have made it possible. In fact, you teach this in the synagogues that people can devote money to God and sidestep the law. Your tradition has taken precedence over the command of God. And so he confronts them on this issue of the law. And we see that taken care of right here as he goes to the big guns of Exodus and gives them the command of God, and yet elevates, they have elevated their tradition up and over that command. In verse 13, he summarizes, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like this. Friends, let's fast forward to our time. We've been given a command by Jesus. Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you know what we do? We find a workaround. So rather than feeling like we are on the hook for helping other people know Jesus, we create a workaround. It goes something like this. Okay, so I go to church on Sunday, and I give money in the offering, and then the pastor tells people about Jesus. So I'm doing the Great Commission by giving to the church. And let me just clarify, you're always good to come to church and you're always good to give. Those are not bad things. But when you let those things take you off the hook 
of the greater command of making Jesus known to people, then we're in trouble. See, isn't that funny how we still have a way of doing the same thing? The Bible says, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. But if we have this tradition that says, well, I can't hang out with bad people. Mom and dad said it's not good for me to hang out with bad people. In fact, what would we use? Bad company corrupts. Yeah, so we have this thing that says, well, I can't hang out with people who do those kind of things. But yet Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself and love me with all your heart. And by the way, make me known to them. Our tradition gets in the way. Fulfilling, fulfilling God's command. And we do many things like this. He goes on in verse 14 of Mark 7. And again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen, everyone, and understand. In other words, this is like a bold print item. Pay attention. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. What's happening? Now Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. They were confronting him as allowing his disciples to eat with unclean hands and therefore becoming unclean inside. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're missing the point. You're missing the point. It's not about what comes into a body that defiles it. I'm going to fast forward on. It's the heart, the things that come from the person. Let's go to Jeremiah 17, because the prophet speaks about this. The heart is deceitful above all things. And beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jeremiah says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind and reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. See, the Pharisees should have known this. They know the prophets. They should have known that God is always more concerned about what's in their heart than how they act. Then Jesus clarifies that later. Let's move on to Mark 7 17. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And in saying this, he declared all foods clean. So back at the house in Capernaum, disciples are like, okay, Jesus, help us understand something here because we're really wrestling with this because they had been so programmed by their heritage. I'm like, okay, so what you're basically saying is what? And Jesus clarifies, what you eat cannot defile you. And they're like, whoa, that's like a really big deal because Leviticus talks about this, about unclean things. And what are you saying? And this was a hard lesson to learn. In fact, Peter had to learn it again in the book of Acts. You can look about that later, but he's been called to go preach to Cornelius. He's like, whoa, that guy is a Gentile. We can't be with Gentiles. And he has this epiphany that Jesus gives them a vision for about clean and unclean animals. You can read it later. The whole point was God was trying to help us understand the issue is not these external matters that we eat. The issue is what's here in the heart. He goes on in verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus is basically confirming this, is this. The origin of defilement is sin in the heart. It's not what you take in through your mouth. 
In fact, when it comes to sin, the heart of the matter is that something is the matter with your heart. The Pharisees never got this. They never got it. A few later might have caught on to it after Jesus died and rose again, like a guy named Paul, formerly called Saul. But this was a hard thing to get because they had so trusted in their religious crust and their traditions that they never attended to the heart. See, defilement occurs because of sin. And our hearts have been inclined towards sin since the day we were born. It's called the sinful nature. And here's what we know to be true. The contents of your heart become the conduct of your life. Isn't that true? What's in the heart comes out. God's always concerned about this because from this, everything flows. True Christianity then is lived from the inside out, not the outside in. And that's why when we come to church, we don't play pretend. We, we, don't, we, we recognize that God is concerned about this. And he'll work from the inside out. We want to fix people from the outside in. And Jesus says, no, look, the Holy Spirit's job is to clean you from the inside out. And so that's what we do. And he lists all these sins and things, and it wasn't meant to be an exhaustive list, but I think he was actually touching things that were in the hearts of either the Pharisees and teachers of the law or even his own disciples that he was talking to to help them know, friends, look, I know your heart. And it's not about all this external law. It's about here. God's always concerned about the heart, right? So what do we do? What's the cure? The good news is the law can't fix that, and Paul declares that in Romans and in Galatians. Law can't fix this, but the gospel can. And God's salvation through Jesus Christ is what helps us to find forgiveness, purity inside of our hearts, that we can live a righteous life that truly honors and pleases God. And so I want to leave us with a thought from Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, when people would show sign of repentance, they would tear their garments as a sign of, of their repentance. And yeah, that might have looked powerful and looked very emotional. But he's saying, don't just rip a garment that means nothing, rend your heart, because that is the issue of the problem. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. I was reading a book by author, Pastor Andy Stanley, and he says this, if it suddenly became impossible for us to cover up all the junk that we normally hide from the rest of humanity, I have a feeling we would all get real motivated to deal with the source of what ails us. And the source is our heart. When it comes to sin, the heart of the matter is that something is the matter with your heart. So Lord, let's pray. Lord, we do exactly what this word challenges us. We don't hide behind religious tradition. We don't hide behind how good we've acted or how Christian we've looked or how holy we've sounded. We don't hide behind those things, Lord, because those don't fool you, much like those Pharisees did not fool you. It's so easy to do that, Lord. It's so easy to lean into tradition and, and, and make that law. 
the Lord challenge us today. Maybe some of us have held on to religious tradition to the extent of harming other people and pushing the kingdom of heaven away from them. Forgive us. And instead, Lord, deal with our hearts. Because maybe we've been judgmental and we've looked at them with pride and arrogance because we thought we were better. Remind us that we're a sinner saved by your grace. And we have a a message of reconciliation to help others know you, that their hearts can be transformed, that they can be changed from the inside out. But Lord, start that with us. Because some of us have been living too long behind a shell of religion. And all the while inside, we have had hard hearts, hearts that are far from you. So this morning, we rend our hearts and we say, Lord, we return to you because you are compassionate and gracious. We confess our sin and ask that you would forgive us and transform us from the inside out. And then help us to be messengers of that good news to those who need to hear it. They maybe don't think they're good enough and can't act good enough and can't dress good enough. Lord, let us be a messenger of hope to them that says that you receive them as they are and you'll do the work of salvation by your Holy Spirit from the inside out. So thank you, Lord, that you get to the heart of the matter even right now with us. Use us now to help others get to the heart of the matter as well. That maybe something is the matter with their heart And if they get that right with you, they enter that relationship that you desire to have, not through rules and regulations, but through relationship with you. Pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.